Welcome to CityGraceNY.com. Thank you for listening to this message recorded live at City Grace Church. Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and reproach for you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Hey, good morning, everyone. So good to be with all of you and to see all of you here. Welcome to City Grace. For uh, those of you who are visiting, uh, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here. Let's pray as we uh, dive into this scripture today. Lord God, I pray that um, you would surprise us, surprise us with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have a friend named Doyle who's a pastor, and um, Doyle had a daughter who was born with kidney uh, issues in one of her kidneys. And uh, as she grew older, they tried to treat the disease, but it, it didn't get any better, and her kidney got worse and worse. And so I think she was five, and they were realizing that they had a pretty serious problem that they were going to have to deal with. So at the time, they were living in California, and... Um, they were worshiping during church one time, and, and Doyle, of course, had requested, Pastor Doyle had requested prayers for his daughter, and so the, the church knew about this situation, and um, so many years later, well, a number of years later, they had since moved to Ohio, and the girl had become a teenager, continued to struggle with the kidney problem, but it, it came to the point where both, both of her kidneys were in complete failure, and so she needed a kidney transplant. But none of the family members were a match, and so they were really stuck in order to, in order to find a, a kidney for her for a replacement. But um, out of the blue, one day, one of their former church members from when they had lived in California reached out to them. And the lady said that, one, you know, back when your daughter was five and we knew the situation about her kidneys, we were worshiping one, in church one day, and I, I felt very clearly like the Lord spoke to me and said, you need to give that girl one of your kidneys. And so I'm reaching out to you many years later, because I know your daughter is still very sick and she needs a, a kidney transplant. I want to give you my, I want to give her one of my kidneys. So of course, this was, this was an incredible surprise. So they of course had to get her tested to see if she was a match. And it turned out that God had completely orchestrated the whole thing exactly how he wanted because the doctor said that this um, person from their church who was not a relative was the closest non, non-blood relative match they'd ever seen for an organ donation. And so just like that, it worked out. So the woman actually flew to Ohio to be with the family and they did the operation. So they removed the kidney from the healthy woman and 
that that was a little bit dicey because um, apparently the kidney, there was some issue with the kidney while they were in the middle of the of the procedure, and they they told the person later that the um, that the kidney had changed from like being a red color to being like almost white while it was in the doctor's hands while I was trying to to take it from the one and and put it in the girl. But anyway, long story short, after a very fitful evening and the the body initially was rejecting. Uh, the organ, which can happen even if it's a, a match, a blood match, um, you can still, your body can still reject the, the organ. And so they, the whole family and all the relatives were all praying like crazy for this to work out. Uh, and then a day later, you know, the, the signs began to go back to normal. And, you know, Kelly is healthy and, and, and fine to this day. And she's in her 30s now. And, and so God completely saved her life. But I just thought that was such an incredible story about how God would speak to somebody right in the middle of a worship service. So better be careful what God says in the middle of a church service because, you know, it could really change your life and it could change somebody else's life. But the reason I tell that story is because, you know, we're in this Advent season and today the theme is joy. And as, we, as we're going to look at this passage in Zephaniah, which, how many of you have even heard of the book of Zephaniah? Some of you, hopefully, because it's like one of those past, it's one of those books of the Bible that you're like, thank goodness we have a pastor who went to seminary because some people haven't even heard of this book. So I actually had to like go back. Thankfully, it's a, it's a short book. It's only, it's only three chapters. But, you know, the good thing about Zephaniah and about joy and, and the reason that we can be, I think, during this Christmas season filled with joy is because joy is all about God giving us better than what we deserve surprising us with his grace, okay? So let me just real quickly um, talk about, kind of give you a background on Zephaniah, and then I'm going to tell you about Marie Kondo and why I think Marie Kondo is important, okay? So background on Zephaniah. So Zephaniah, it's only a three-chapter book. It's not a long book, but if you were to read Zephaniah, and I encourage you after today to go back and take some time to reflect on it, that it starts off in a very dire kind of situation, and Zephaniah was an Old Testament prophet, so he's 7th century B.C. He's uh, was assigned by God to be um, to have a prophetic ministry to Jerusalem and the, the ancient country of, of Israel. And he is, he is preaching a message of wrath. And so I'm just going to be real straight up with you today. I'm not going to pull any punches. It is very, very, you know, chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Zephaniah is about God's wrath. It's about God saying, you people have not been faithful to me. You've been serving other idols. And it's very, very heavy, serious language. And so if you come, if you're not from a, the, the Christian background, um, some of this will probably sound very upsetting and offensive to you. But just to give you a taste, so look at um, chapter 1, verse 4 through 7, where he says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host. Right, God made the stars in the heavens, but he never expected us to worship the stars in the heavens, but that's what was happening. Those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Moloch. Moloch was an ancient pagan god of the Canaanites. Those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The day the Lord has prepared a sacrifice, he has consecrated those he has invited. Do I go further? Okay. So it, it, is, a, it is a somber and threatening kind of message. And so I think to our modern sensibilities, and especially if there are any of you here today that you, you, know, you don't come from a Christian background, and so all this idea about the wrath of God sounds very foreign and strange and harsh and over the top. I just want to, you know, real briefly, and we'll move on. You know, 
if you, not to justify it or to try to explain it away, but to, to help us to see kind of from God's perspective, why exactly is it that God is so fearsome and wrathful when it comes to the, this kind of sin? And so the first thing to, to, to point out is that for God, he always equates idolatry with adultery. Idolatry is like adultery to God. And so, you know, tragic situations happen where you have a, a marriage partner who is unfaithful to another, and that's a horrible thing. But, but imagine that you had a spouse that was unfaithful once, and they came and confessed to you, but then they went out and they did it again, and then they did it again, and then they did it again. You know, wouldn't you as a spouse, you would come to a point where you were just utterly frustrated and completely, you know, disgusted and disenchanted with this person, and you would be like, it's over. And so, actually, from a biblical perspective, that's kind of how God sees idolatry. So when, when God's people, you know, you know, after all that God has done and his desire to love his people and to take care of his people and to reveal himself to his people, and yet the people turn to other gods, God equates that with adultery. And actually, you could read in the Old Testament, there's a book called Hosea. And in Hosea, that, that's really the whole theme of the whole book is that, you know, God is saying, like, when you people, when you Israelites are not faithful to me, it's like you're cheating on me with, with somebody else. And, and I love you, and I've given myself for you. How could you ever, how could you do this to me? And so the prophet Hosea actually is called to take, it's a crazy story, but he's called to take a wife who is unfaithful to him and to, to live with her, to love her, even despite that, because he's meant to be this living demonstration to God's people of, like, this is what I feel like all the time, right? So, so that's one thing to keep in mind. Um, but another thing to keep in mind when we talk about the wrath of God, about idolatry, is the insane things that people do in the Old Testament times in order to try to gain benefits from these foreign gods. So you saw that in the passage, Moloch was uh, mentioned. So how many of you have heard of Moloch? Some of you know this. Okay, so some of you don't. Moloch was actually, you know, the fertility god. And the worship of Moloch, this is very PG-13, folks, ready? <laughs> I'm glad there's no kids here. But the, the worship of Moloch involved child sacrifice. This was happening in Israel, right? God never intended that. Never, never in a million years would want people to, to try to gain blessing by sacrifice a, a living child. That was not what he intended. And so, you know, when God is, is, is threatening rather judgment on people for idolatry, like these are no small things. You know, these are not light things. I think they're, they're things that even as like modern New Yorkers, we could be like, yes, yeah, sacrificing living children on an altar, like that's, we all agree, that's, a, that's no bueno. Um, but, but thirdly, and this is the important thing to, to remember, is that, you know, the wrath of God, the anger of God, is, at the end of the day, because God cares. So the backdrop of God's anger and God's wrath is always, always the love of God and the concern and care of God. Because if God really, if God really didn't love the people he created, if he didn't love the creation then he would do what I think the deists suggest, which would be he would get the world started and kind of like, you know, kick it along. And then he would take a step back and be like, I'm done. Yeah, I'm going to ghost these people. I don't want anything more to do with them. Uh, they can manage their problem on their own. But that is never what God does. It's never what he does. And so keep in mind when we're reading these passages about like the wrath of God, the anger of God, which is all the beginning of Zephaniah, it's, it's because God cares. And I think that once your parent 
you know, and you see your kids and you see them make mistakes and um, you see them fight. And, you know, God forbid someday you saw your kid just make a colossal mistake. You know, you as a parent would just be, you would be, I think, furious and upset, but not because you hate them, it's because you love them, right? And so that, that's really the, the, the wrath of God has as its backdrop the love of God, the care of God. He gets angry, not because he hates the world, but because he loves the world, okay? So I want to move on from that, but I just wanted to, I know that that wrath idea kind of brings up hard feelings for some of us, so I just wanted to, to say that. But that's the beginning of, of, of Zephaniah, but that is not how Zephaniah ends. So as we continue to go through Zephaniah, we begin to see that there's hopes of restoration. So chapter 2, verse 3, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do not, or you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. And so we begin to see that there was wrath, there was the threat of wrath, the threat of destruction, but now we're beginning to see that actually there's hope, that God's up to something. And that destruction and judgment are not the final word. That something good's going to happen. So we get a, a note of hope in chapter 2. And then by the time that we're at chapter 3, it's, it's grace upon grace. So check out a couple verses that I think really capture chapter 3. Verse 9. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. So you see there that you know the people have been scattered, and this actually happened. I mean, ancient Israel was scattered, but the Assyrians came in, the Babylonians came in, the people were exiled all across the Mediterranean Empire. But God is saying that after that, after that, I'm going to come and I'm going to purify you. And I'm going to restore you. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to connect you. Right? You've been living in isolation, you've been living in disgrace, you've been living in humiliation, all these countries, all these countries are mocking you because of everything that has happened to Israel, but, but I am faithful and I love you and all the countries, you're all spread out, you're disconnected, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go, I'm going to bring you in, I'm going to gather you together. You're going to have a strong sense of identity, you're going to know who you are because I care about you and I'm going to reach out to you, I'm going to bring you in. So these this words of love, these words of grace. And then in, in verse 17, and I'm, uh, I'm borrowing from the ESV translation here because I, I think it, um, it captures the sense of the, of, of the text better. But I, I want to suggest to you that this verse, 317, if you're not familiar with this verse, you should memorize this verse because this is probably one of the most beautiful and one of the touching kind of images that we get in all of Scripture regarding God and His concern for His people. What does it say? He says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. And I have a picture here that I think really captures exactly what Zephaniah is talking about. Because when he is talking about it, I'm gonna, it, it, it's, it's such tender, and I'll even say feminine language for God. It, it's, it's motherhood. It's motherhood. I'm going to rejoice over you. I'm going to, I'm going to comfort you. It's like I'm going to sing over you like a mother singing to her baby. And so you see what Zephaniah here is saying is like you've experienced hardship. You've been scattered. You've suffered in your life. But I am the God who I'm going to gather you together. I'm going to be right there with you. I'm going to come to you. 
and I am going to rejoice over you. It's such an interesting verse because, you know, the, the scripture always talks about rejoicing in the Lord, but here it's flipped. Here instead of us rejoicing in the Lord, it's saying God is rejoicing in you. He loves you. He rejoices over you. He's so glad for you. He loves you. He cares about you, right? He's going to take away everything in us that is impure and unholy, everything that caused all the problems in the first place. He's going to remove it. We'll talk later about how he does that. And he's going to comfort us and say, you know, I'm with you. It's like Isaac right there with his baby. That, that's God, right? That's God. Oprah, can you imagine? Listen, you want to have a good time of meditation? Look at that verse and think about that for 20 minutes. Just think about being a baby in the hands of God. That, that's what we're talking about. That tender, caring image. So that's where it's all going, okay? Now, what in the world does Maria Kondo have to do with all of this? Um, we are, so that's joy. That's where joy comes from, right? We get better than we expected. We, it is Christmas time, and every year I get kind of Scrooge-like because I personally you know, find Christmas to be so completely over the top in our culture. Uh, Christmas has been completely co-opted by commercialism and materialism. And you know, maybe at some point in time, somebody thought it was a good idea to do gift giving on, some, uh, on Christmas because, of course, Jesus is the baby gift to us, and so we celebrate God's gift to us by giving gifts. But what we have now, I think, is like way, way beyond that. Uh, an, a, not a friend of mine, an author that I know, he had this hilarious story about, um, well, I'll get to that in a minute, actually. But, so anyway, Christmas is, is, is over the top, and we're spending money we don't have on things that we don't need in a New York City apartment, which you don't even have room for the things that you want to buy, you know? And uh, you're going to give your super a heart attack, because he's just going to have, like, piles and piles of garbage from uh, all the wrapping paper that he's got to throw away and, and stuff like that. So we'd be doing ourselves a great favor if we would all just scale back, I think. But, you know, we need to think about, at Christmas time, removing the clutter. Removing the clutter of Christmas, but also removing the clutter of our lives. So how many of you are familiar with Marie Kondo? Tidying up with Marie Kondo. So some of you know. So she's on Netflix. She's got this great little show. She's this adorable little Japanese lady who is an expert, expert home organizer. And she's all about tidying up. And so Marie Kondo has this interesting philosophy, which is that you should not keep anything in your home or in your apartment that doesn't do what? Spark joy, yes. That doesn't spark joy. So you go around the home, does this spark joy? <laughs> no. So she says respectfully, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Garment, for the way you have served me. And then you put it aside, and you find other things, and they, they do spark joy, so you keep them. I totally rearranged all my, um, <laughs> all my shelves, and I, I, have this, I, I fold my clothes, and I, you know, it has to be able to stand up straight. I do it now. I love it. It's great. Anyway, I was thinking you know, we should hire Marie Kondo for the Grace Faith building, because I think we should go through. It's just there's so much stuff there. I'm not trying to be offensive to anybody. But, uh, just, Pastor Jesse said that the Chinese philosophy is if it's not broken, don't fix it, right? You just leave well enough alone. But anyway, um, I met this lady the other day, and uh, she was an interior, a home interior organizer. And so I said, oh, so you're kind of like the Maria Kondo of America. She, and she kind of looked at me, and she's like, yeah. But I could tell she didn't really appreciate that. <laughs> um, so I let that go. Uh, but anyway, 
So Maria Kondo, right? Sparking joy. And what if Christmas is about sparking joy? What if, that's, what if God gave us Christ to spark joy? But I think we have so much clutter, right? And it, Christmas becomes about all these other things. And so what I want to do with the time we have remaining is to say, why don't we do a little bit of tidying up, Maria Kondo style, of our houses, not our, not our apartments, but our, of our lives. Tidy up our lives. And think about what is it that we carry and what is it that we hold on to that actually diminishes joy? And we need to do some tidying up. We need to wrap that stuff up and get it out of here. But then there's other things that do spark joy. And we need to hold on to those things. Right? So Maria Kondo is going to come with us now. And I want us to imagine that we're going to do some tidying up of the soul. What does that look like? Maybe as we are in this Christmas season, you know, we realize and you observe within yourself a sense of entitlement. And entitlement, I think, in our day and age, in our culture, it's just, it's just rampant. It, it's everywhere. So we all, all are kind of guilty of it to some extent. But entitlement is this idea that I deserve things. And it is one of the biggest things in our lives that destroys our capacity to be able to have joy. Because it takes away any sense of gratitude or thankfulness. Um, so, so my friend, the, this author, um, he's not my friend, but I listen to his podcast. He's like my friend. He's always in my ear. He had, uh, he's got a number of great uh, grandchildren, so they had Christmas at his home. So one year, he decided it was a good idea to send all the, Christmas, the, all the grandkids a, a note saying, you can make a list of all the Christmas presents that you want for this year. Send them to Grandma and I, and we'll do our best to get all of them. So Christmas morning comes, and he said there's so many Christmas presents in the room that they couldn't even see the tree. The tree was covered with Christmas presents. So they're going through, they're giving the gifts to all the grandchildren, and then all of a sudden they notice that there's a grandchild that's sort of in a corner who's just bawling and bawling and bawling. And they're like, what's the matter? Why is she so upset? Well, come to find out that there were 15 things on her list, but Grandma and Grandpa only got 14. But they missed one. And so the, 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 little, the little granddaughter was very, very upset. And, you know, that is, I think, one of the, the challenges with Christmas and with all this stuff is the expectation and the, I deserve this, I need this. And, you know, I'm very concerned about that with my kids because then it turns out that um, they're not thankful. Highly entitled people are on the verge of being resentful and angry because we live in a non-perfect world in which things don't always go the way you want, in which things don't work out often the way you want them to. But when you're entitled, it's like you're not, you're, you're so close, you're riding that edge uh, of being disappointed and therefore being angry and frustration because it actually turns out the world is not perfect. So you are bound to be disappointed at times. Um, so we go back to Zephaniah then and I think what Zephaniah is trying to remind us all, especially sort of in the early chapters, is that actually when it comes to what do we deserve, what do we deserve? He's saying, you actually deserve wrath. You deserve wrath. We should be thankful that really anything goes smoothly or well in our lives because what we deserve was to be cast away from God, to be destroyed because of our idolatry and because of our rebellion. 
But see, that's not where Zephaniah ends, right? He says, this is what you deserve, but you have a God who loves you so much that even though you deserve wrath, the Son of God was willing to come into the world and take that wrath on himself so that you could have eternal life. And that's why Christmas is such an occasion for joy because it's a reminder that Jesus is our Savior. That our Savior has come into the world to take what we deserve in order to give us something so much better. Right? So how can we be entitled? Right? Zephaniah is like, you don't get what you deserve. In fact, actually, you get way, way better than you deserve. And so when we realize that, and, and I hope, I, I really hope that this Christmas season, that as you're visiting with family and you're doing all the Christmas stuff, that that in that, the real true message of Christmas doesn't get lost. And you do remember that at the end of the day, right, it is about God giving himself and coming to us in order to relieve us of all the guilt and all the shame that we're so prone to carrying because of all the crazy things that we've done. We get way better than we deserve. So Marie Kondo says, you found that entitlement? Thank you, entitlement. We don't need you anymore. We're going to fold that up. We're going to get rid of it because we don't need it. But we found something else that we want to keep, we want to hold of. We want to keep a hold of and keep it very close. And that is the opposite of entitlement, which is humility. Humility, humility if you do a, an inward search, right, and look in your own heart, in your own soul, and ask yourself, is there any humility there? Is there any humility there? Do I have any humility? Am I entitled? Do I think I deserve things? or? Am I sort of aware of who I am? I'm aware of my shortcomings. I don't think I'm better than other people. The opposite of entitlement is humility. If humility diminishes our capacity to be surprised by joy, then humility is exactly the opposite, and it's exactly what God is looking for in us. And the overwhelming message of Scripture is that if we humble ourselves before God, then we put ourselves in a place to be raised up by God, to be surprised by his love and by his joy. And so that's why in Zephaniah, the humility is a big message. Uh, chapter 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. If we think about the fact that God's wrath was coming, that, that we deserve this this punishment for our sins, but that God, instead of punishing us because he loves us, was willing to take that on himself through the cross, this is incredible, incredible reason to be humble. And that, I guarantee, will radically change um, the way we think about our lives. It will change our relationships. God's people are meant to be a humble people. So maybe you have a question, well, okay, so humility is good, I get that, but how exactly do I go about being humble? And I think that, actually, Tim Keller said this best, and he said that, that true humility is not about thinking less of yourself, but it's about thinking of yourself less. Does that make sense? So humility is not like, I get so down on myself, oh, I'm such a loser, I'm, I, I make all these mistakes, I'm a failure, I'm never going to amount to anything. That's actually not humility. Humility is like, if, yeah, part of it is knowing who you are, but part of it is just like not thinking about yourself so much, not always being the center of what your life is about. And so I think that if you wanted to work on humility, and maybe this is something that would be good to think about during the Christmas season, it, you know, what if every single day, as you leave your apartment, most of you live in apartments, but you leave your apartment to
to go to your work, to do whatever it is that you're doing, that you asked yourself, and you made it your goal, that every single day, you would seek to substantially bless somebody and surprise them. So you go, you're going to work, and you're thinking, how could I love this person? How could I unexpectedly bless somebody? I'll brag about my wife, because she's not here today. She would be super embarrassed. But she was at work the other day, and uh, there was a person that she saw in the elevator who looked like a wreck, physician. So my wife asked her if she was okay. No, she was very upset. Things were going horribly. So Christy, later that day, went and just, and she, she doesn't do this every day, but she went and she bought some flowers at the store and came back and said, you know, I saw you were having a really hard day. I just wanted to, to give these to you to cheer you up. And the woman was so overwhelmed and thankful, she just completely fell apart right in front of Christy, just bawling and bawling. But can you imagine if God's people, the church, that we were so not focused on ourselves that instead we were thinking, how can I bless other people? Then our attention, our focus wouldn't be so on ourselves all the time and we would be, I think, surprised. We would be surprised by joy, right? So Maria Kondo says, hey, you found a little bit of humility? Hold on to that, nurture that. Not, not Marie Kondo. God says this, right? So, <laughs> take me a little too far. <laughs> All right. So we're doing more inventory. We're looking. We're assessing. And I, you can do this at home. Do it with me now. But you can do this at home for your, for your prayer exercises. Anytime. You do a kind of inventory. What, do I, what am I seeing? Am I seeing good things? Am I... Seeing things that spark joy, seeing things that diminish joy. Another thing that we tend to find a lot of, especially in our day and age, is fear. We have so much fear. Uh, we live in an age of anxiety. We are so medicated, we are so fearful, so anxious all the time. We are anxious about the political climate. Uh, it's a scary time. It's, it feels very um, chaotic, not stable. So the political climate is anxiety-inducing, the actual climate is anxiety-inducing as well, with global, you know, uh, global warming and stuff like that. Um, maybe you have fear about being alone for the rest of your life. You have fear about meeting the right person, right? Am I going to be alone? Am I, am I going to ever meet the person that God has for me? Or maybe you're in a job that you hate and you have fear. Am I going to be stuck in this job forever? Am I ever going to be able to do a job that I enjoy? Am I ever going to be at a job where people treat me well? or where I feel like I can do something that, that is significant. Maybe a fear about how your kids are gonna turn out. You know, I have fear about that. I just want them to turn out all right. I don't need them to turn out awesome. I just want them to not turn out to be total jerks. So worry about that. Am I doing the right things? Am I parenting in the right way? They don't give you a manual on parenting, so there's a lot of fear with that. Well, they do, the Bible actually, but, uh, but no, you know, a lot of it is trial and error. Maybe you have fear about are you going to have enough money to retire? Are you going to have to work forever? I feel like I'm probably going to have to work, work forever. So I hope that when I'm 90, I can still pull off a, a sermon that people want to listen to. Because I'm probably just going to be up there. Hopefully I don't live to be 90, but I might. So, so fear. Does fear spark joy? Fear doesn't spark joy at all. Fear, fear kills joy. So Maria Kondo said, you've got to get rid of the fear. If you identify fear, there's things that keep you up at night. You know, in a sense, in a sense, there's good fear. When you see a bus that is barreling towards you, 
And you do what all New Yorkers do, and you're like two steps out to the sidewalk, and it's about to, to run you over, and it honks at you. And you look up, and you're like, ah, and then your, your heart races, and you jump back. Fear served you well. Fear ser saved your life. That's the purpose of fear, is to save your life in case of a threatening uh, situation. But the thing is, that's really the only positive that fear has. Any other kind of fear is going to take a massive toll on your life, and it's going to diminish you. And it's going to give you health problems. But worse, yeah, I think what fear does to us is it keeps us from enjoying the blessings that God has for us. It keeps us from enjoying the life that God wants us to have. I firmly believe that. Fear and our fear of risk prevents us from oftentimes doing the things that we believe God has called us to do. We hold back. We're afraid. We don't act. And so this kind of fear, and I would also, by the way, these would be separate sermons, talk about shame and talk about guilt, fall into the category of emotions that do not serve you. They do not serve you. We need to eradicate them. But how? How do we do that? And the way is, of course, by focusing on the presence of Christ. Because the gift of God, which is his son, has come into the world, is the light of the world. And it's that light that we need to overcome our fear. People often say you can't be in fear and in faith at the same time. And I think that there's a lot of truth to that. That fear and faith rule each other out. And the reason is, because if you're in fear, right, you're looking at your problem. You're looking at the thing that scares you, but you're not looking at God. But when our eyes are on God and we're focused on Him, fear loses its power and its grip that it has over your life. So funny story, I was at my grandmother's house and she's got a place in the Poconos. And my wife and I were staying in the guest room and my grandmother was not there. And it's like 12 o'clock at night, everything is dark. And we hear this crazy, crazy noise from some part of the house. And Christy's like, Ben, go check that out. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm scared, I can't do it. She's like, well, what is it? I don't know, but I'd rather just fall asleep. I can't go, I'm too scared. So I literally was too afraid to get out of bed and go check it out. Now the thing is, if this had been in the middle of the, of the day, that's not scary in the middle of the day. Right? When there's light there, you hear a strange noise in part of the house, you just go and check it out. It's no big deal. But 12 o'clock at night when everything is dark, oh, it's like super scary. And so, right, things are scary in the dark, but in the light of Christ, they're not. And so, if we look to Christ and we have faith in Christ, we understand that he is present with us, then that is where we get the courage in order to be able to overcome our fears. So we get rid of fear. Fear does not serve us unless you're in front of a bus. Fear holds us back. Fear keeps us from doing the things that we believe God wants us to do. It really is a, it's a toxic, toxic thing for God's people. Can't have fear, we gotta, we gotta deal with it. And the way we do that is by looking to Christ. So finally, the ultimate thing that sparks joy. I've already kind of mentioned it and alluded to it already. And it is the presence of God. It is the presence of God. And that is what Christmas is all about. It's about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, out of the great and incredible love of God, not leaving us alone, not leaving us in wrath, not leaving us in our sin, but coming to us. And that is all what Zephaniah is about. It says it numerous times, I will come to you. I will be with you. I am with you. 
And the way that we overcome fear and the way we experience God's love is by looking to God in faith, accepting this gift, and having God's presence come more and more into our life. And that, I believe, comes primarily through worship. It is in worship that God makes His presence known. It is said that the worship of God ushers in the presence of God. And the presence of God is by far the greatest joy-inducing thing that could possibly exist. Because we were made for it. That's what we were created for. We were created to be in relationship with God. And so when God comes into our lives, we are made whole. When he comes into our lives, despite the fact that we have sinned and he dies on the cross for our lives, we are overwhelmed with joy because we realize God has done so much for us, so much more than we deserved. One time I experienced joy, but I couldn't, I couldn't laugh. And here's why. I was at a prayer meeting and they were praying for me. So some folks had gathered around. This was at Pastor John and Mimi's house. And there was a man there whose name is Matthew Suh. And Matthew Suh felt, um, he felt led by God to anoint me with oil. Mimi, do you remember this? So he goes digging around in Mimi's kitchen to find some oil. I'm just on the ground. They're laying hands on me. Everyone's praying for me. It was, it was really nice. But so, so Matthew goes rummaging through Mimi's kitchen to find the oil. He gets some oil. I didn't, I didn't know he was doing this. So I'm just, I'm just sitting there. And then uh, he comes and he dumps oil on my head right in the middle of the prayer time. And I could feel it literally dripping down my face and onto my nose. No one has ever done this to me before. So this was very, very strange for me. Some people anoint with oil all the time. But for me, this was, this was, uh, this was very strange. And this was a very serious moment, right? Everybody's praying for me. And then all of a sudden, I felt this urge to laugh. And the reason I wanted to laugh is because I never experienced anything so strange in my entire life as somebody putting oil on my head while we were all praying. And so, but I was trying to hold it back because I was afraid that if they saw me laughing, that they would think that something really, like I had was demon possessed or something. Because who laughs when they're getting prayed for? So I knew I couldn't laugh, so I was holding it in, but I was like really almost in pain. But then I didn't realize what was happening, but then I talked to Pastor John about it after where he said, you should have laughed because the, 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 the Spirit was on you and the presence of God brings joy. That's what the Spirit does. It brings joy. <laughs> and so Christmas is a time for joy. It's God coming. It is His presence coming into the world. And of course, Jesus was here and He ascended, but now He's come back through the Holy Spirit. He's still with us in a very real way. And so at Christmas, we were reminded of these things. We can be filled with joy, filled with laughter. And I'll be totally honest in my own life, I have experienced that I have more joy. I'm increasing in joy all the time. And I have more and more laughter. In fact, I, uh, my kids and, and me, sometimes we watch um, funny fishing fails on YouTube. And we laugh so hard from, it's just me and my eight-year-old and my six-year-old that my ribs hurt. And I can't laugh right now because if I laugh too hard, my ribs hurt from laughing so hard. So this is what God has done in my life. He's just given me this joy. And I believe he can give all of us that joy. And that is what Christmas is about. So let me I'll close with uh, reminding you about um, something Augustine said. St. Augustine, some that yeah, I have it up front. Think, Awake, mankind. For if, for your sake, God has become man. Awake, you who sleep. Rise up from the dead. And Christ will enlighten you. I tell you again, for your sake, God became man. For your sake. For your sake. For you. 
Christ came into the world for you. Doesn't matter your sin. Doesn't matter your shame. Doesn't matter what guilt you may, you may have. It doesn't matter how far you may feel from God. Doesn't matter how unworthy you may feel. God came for you. That's why he was born into this world. That's what Christmas is about. But like any gift, you gotta receive it and you gotta unwrap it. And there's a prayer that you can do that you can say, which was it's just that, unwrapping this gift, receiving this gift. So will you pray with me? And um, I'll read it. And then we'll have just a time. We'll have some music. I think the, the band and the choir are going to come up in a minute here. But maybe you want to say this prayer for the first time. You want this joy. You want this love. You do realize Christ came into the world. He didn't come to judge the world. He came to save the world because he loves us. And if you want to accept this into your heart, this you can do it right now by in your heart, just saying this prayer with me. It goes like this. Father in heaven, I acknowledge that I don't deserve your love because of my sins. But you love me and sent your son into the world to die for my sins. I put my faith in Jesus. Help me not to be overcome by my fears. Send your spirit into my life and empower me to live for you from now on. So Lord, we pray that you would spark joy in our lives. Take away our grief, take away our sadness, take away our fear, take away our resentments. Lord, we don't want these things anymore. We want to get rid of them. We want to put them out with the, with the garbage. We want our entitlement to also go out in the garbage. God, we, don't, we know we don't deserve any of this. That every, every blessing you give, all the love you give is it's so much more than what we deserve. You take away our guilt. You take away our shame. You place on your shoulders the wrath that we deserved by dying on a cross. And so, God, we worship you. Lord, we invite you into this place. Fill us with joy. Fill us with laughter. May we laugh. May we have joy in our hearts, especially this Christmas season, because of all that you have done for us and because of all that you do for us.